not be convenient, they should not necessarily be comfortable, and they should in fact be challenging and cause it a, a degree of, shall we say, constructive discomfort in terms of being reviewed and thinking about its own practice and what should be done about it. And when the entire overarching ethos of a reform process is to try to make the entire enterprise as congenial as possible for the state which is meant to be challenged by that process, it, is not, um, it isn't necessarily, in my view, putting the, um, the emphasis uh, in, in, in quite the right, 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 right place. But with that rather unenlightening preface to what motivates me here, let me just then say um, you know, a little bit um, about what the, the problem with the UN Human Rights Treaty Body System actually um, is. There are many, and everyone in this room who knows about the system doubtless would come up with some other difficulties that they could choose to, 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 to focus on. It's often said that it is a, a system in crisis. If it is a system in crisis, we shouldn't get this out of proportion. It's been in one form of crisis since it was first established, and the first of the human rights treaty bodies uh, came into being as long ago as uh, 1976, and according to some, they have been in crisis ever since. So crisis is just a way of life, but that shouldn't then take away from the seriousness of the issues that currently have to be, be faced in, in relation to them. Um, by way of introduction, um, we ought to remind ourselves very briefly of just a few basic facts about what I mean when we talk about the, uh, the UN, human, uh, UN Human Rights Treaty, Treaty Body System. And as we do, we will see that this in fact is a reason for part of the problem that we have. The treaty body system revolves around the 10 UN human rights treaty bodies which have been created, uh, which have uh, specific mandates under the treaties which, which create them and which provide a source of legal obligation for states' parties and therefore um, are mechanisms which have uh, a legal reach. And that is really quite important to, to remember. And this is what is so distinctive about the 10 um, human rights um, treaty bodies and the, and, and the core treaties which, which they represent. Whilst there may be many other human rights mechanisms within the UN system and many other human rights um, instruments and obligations, um, these are the ones that are clearly grounded in law and are not the product of political processes. And if one wants to step back, one can say one of the meta-problems about what is going on in the United Nations at the moment concerning the future of the treaty bodies really is a little bit of a tussle between whether the future direction of human rights, um, um, let us call it implementation, is going to be primarily channeled through uh, what I would see as a, as, as, a, as a legally oriented system based around the treaty bodies or through a more politically oriented system based around the work of the Human Rights Council. And when one steps back from the, from the detail here, that is basically the distinction that we have. Is the future largely going to be channeled through political or through, let us call it, legal, um, legal approaches? I over-dramatise only slightly, but it is important to remember that that is the, you know, the background here. 
In so saying, I am perfectly well aware that the way that the um, human rights system within the UN is constructed and calibrated still means that it cannot really, in my view, make a huge amount of process without clear interface within, with the political end. It is ultimately the political architecture which provides the driver for many states for compliance rather than than findings or outputs of the legal end of the system, but it is important that that political end is the driver for the outputs of the legal process, not that the legal process becomes subordinate to or subordinated by the, um, let us call it, the, 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 the political arm, arm of the system. And so underlying all that I'm saying really is this you know, quasi-existential struggle that I think many involved in, let us call it, the legal side, the treaty body side, feel. Now, it could be that we are all just paranoid. Um, uh, but in the words of the old adage, just because you're paranoid, para just because you're paranoid does not mean they're not out to get you. Um, and there is very much, um, uh, very much of that in, in, the, in the problems that we face. So what are these problems? Um, the first problem is the size of the treaty body system, coupled with the type of mechanisms which have been put in place by the United Nations to oversee compliance. And it's worth saying that in relation to nine of the ten UN human rights treaty bodies, the basic ways of trying to ensure that states comply with their human rights obligations basically haven't changed for over 50 years. The idea that, that we find in the oversight mechanisms were basically those that were first devised in the, late in, the, in the early 1960s, were first presented in the International, Covenant on, uh, uh, International Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination in 1965-66, and then were taken up virtually identically into the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights coming into in 1966, coming into force in 1976 and with one exception of one treaty which I shall try not to mention until the very end have been replicated in all others in more or less identical forms. And so in other words conceptually the tools and techniques that we are trying to use to oversee the implementation of human rights uh, obligations by states in the 21st century are precisely the tools that were devised in a Cold War era when the world was very, very different and the, and, 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 and the tools of oversight that were available to states were very, very different. And yet somehow these have become, shall we say, ossified in thinking around what the best way to try to achieve compliance with international human rights commitments actually are, even through the, you know, the, the legal mechanisms. Uh, and that is one of the things, as I'll be saying later, that I think does need reappraising and challenging. But we may have these, these ossified processes, but what are they? Well, as you will know, the first, the most famous, and the one that doubtless we, I, will, I will be focusing on quite a lot, is the reporting process. This quaint, archaic idea that a state will produce an impartial report on its compliance with its human rights obligations, which will be submitted to an independent committee of experts, which will review the report, um, tell the state how well it's doing um, and, and where it needs to uh, make improvements, and the state, being very grateful for this insights which it otherwise didn't have, will go back from whence it came and immediately make the changes which are necessary, and will be very grateful for the um, um, for the result of the exercise. Um, 
I only caricature it slightly. Um, and, and that is basically the reporting um, process in, in, in a nutshell. For some, that is, again, precisely the model that they wish to portray. For others, of course, it should be a moment of real challenge and scrutiny, and the battleground in the reporting process has always been how do you actually convert it from this rather you know, anodyne, um, anodyne approach into something that is truly challenging and, and has depth and has follow-up with it. And it isn't that that cannot be done. Increasingly it is done, but it comes at a, at a cost and with some struggle. For the system was not really set up in order for it to produce that, 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 out, that outcome. Alongside the reporting process, which we focus on because it is the only thing which is compulsory for all states within this system, we then move on to the, as you know, the system of individual communications, which in the UN system are indeed called communications, not complaints or petitions. They are merely communications and the outcomes are merely views. Um, and despite what many of us would wish to say, they are not really binding um, per se on anyone directly. Um, and these come in two varieties, individual and indeed interstate. It is worth saying that um, we used to say at this point we never talk about the interstate communication procedure in the UN because it has never been used. Uh, great excitement in the last two years or so. For the first time, interstate communications have been lodged. Is this the renaissance of, a, of, of, of this within the UN? Don't get too excited. It is almost entirely a product of the need to not to, I suppose, exhaust international remedies before you can skip the treaty bodies and take cases to the International Court of Justice on the basis of compromissory clauses, as was found out in the, um, um, in, in, in the Georgia-Russia case before the ICJ when attempts were made to bring individual, to, to bring cases um, before the ICJ um, on the basis of the compromissory clause within that, the ICJ decided it could not do so because the wording of the relevant Article 22 in the ICCPR in effect required that cases first had been considered at an interstate level through the mechanisms provided, which was, in their view, by taking an interstate case before the uh, relevant human rights treaty body. The wording is different in each of the conventions, so that doesn't apply to all. So funnily enough, when states now are thinking of bringing complaints before the ICJ, there is another hurdle that they need to get over, which is just being seen to bring a case before the... Um, before the relevant human rights body um, in Geneva. And so there have been a trickle of cases to that effect, much to the disappointment, I think, of the Office of the High Commissioner to realise they are a procedural hurdle rather than an end in themselves. Um, but, but be that as it may. But we have the communications procedure, the only one that has shown any real innovation um, since those first two were set out in the early 1960s was the introduction of the inquiry procedures which were first found in the, um, in, in, in the uh, Convention Against Torture in 1984 and subsequently through a series of um, either optional protocols or the drafting of later instruments have been engrafted into the, you know, into the protective armoury of, of, of most of the other treaties. But before one gets too excited about inquiries by treaty bodies under these procedures, very few of them have ever occurred. Um, and it is highly unlikely for practical reasons that very many, that very many will. Engrafting into new treaties, 
So if these are the basic techniques which were available to the, to, the, to the UN and have just been repeated in most of the other treaties down the years, what have been the issues? Well, first of all, there is the question of the size of the treaty body system. When this system was devised, it was originally conceived for a world in which there were 50, 60, 70 states, in which there was the international covenants, the um, building on the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, two or three treaties. Relatively few treaties, relatively few potential numbers of states' parties. That, of course, has now changed dramatically. We have, for all practical purposes, getting on for 200 states within the system. The aim is universal ratification of all the now 10 um, human rights treaties, um, nine of those have reporting procedures, um, but some of the optional protocols to the Children's Rights Convention also have optional procedures. So in reality, there are 11 different mechanisms which have got reporting obligations associated with them. Do the maths. Um, the average period over which a state is meant to be submitting a report is, it varies from treaty to treaty, but let's be generous and say around once every four years. If you have states trying to submit reports once every four years, that means with 200 states and universal ratification, the UN has and the treaty bodies have in the order of 500 reports to consider in the course of a year, which means that the average treaty, if it were working and working in that way, would be having to cover clear about 50 reports per year. Each report at the moment takes the alarmingly short time of around two and a half days is allocated to it to consider it, which would mean that even if each committee was doing absolutely nothing else, it would be having to spend over half the year in session, which means that you would have to have six treaty bodies in, in session at any one, five or six in session at any one time, operating in parallel across the entire year. Forget anything to do with desirability, practicality, effectiveness. That is just not possible within the current envisioning of the way in which the Office of the High Commissioner is set up and the entire system is, is, is established. There is no mystery to this. As long ago as 2012, the then UN um, High Commissioner Navi Pillay produced a report on the treaty body system that basically said that whilst they were, to use her words, quote, the jewel in the crown of the UN human rights system, they only functioned because of the failure of states to comply with their obligations. If states complied with their obligations under the treaty, the system would fail because it could not possibly begin to cope. It was never designed to cope and operate in this way. And in a sense, that then sets down the challenge. The sheer size of the system has led to a sheer practical challenge around the sheer mechanics of undergoing, of, of exercising the processes which it has already put in place. And at one level, the debate hasn't really moved on from beginning to address that practical challenge. How can you cram this amount of activity into the working frame? Of course, what that debate doesn't even begin to do is to address some of the other challenges around the system. The challenge brought many of the challenges brought on by the incremental growth of the system over the years. We've moved, as I say, from three, four, five treaty bodies to ten. There are three currently under active investig um, 
consideration within the UN on business and human rights, on the rights of older persons, and I hesitate to use the official language of the, of the next because it will grate with some, but it is on the human rights of, well, country dwellers or peasants, depending on the official title is, I have to say, peasant, um, which I think many of us say is not the best way of looking at this. Let us call them rural workers. Um, is what the gist of it is, but another three treaty bodies potentially coming on stream, operating in exactly the same way, piling into this space. Alongside the size of this, we have the increasing difficulty of overlapping mandates within the treaty body system themselves. Understandably, the treaty bodies um, are uh, the treaties fall ultimately into two categories, those which are generic in scope uh, or those which are addressing either a specific theme or issue. So the generics being the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Economic Social, the specifics either addressing themes like racial discrimination, enforced disappearances, migrant workers, torture, or particular vulnerable groups such as children, such as women, etc. Inevitably, there is overlap of focus between them. For those on the treaty bodies, this is seen as a strength. For many outside the system, it is seen as a weakness. The thing that can make it a weakness is that there is not necessarily internal coherence between what the different bodies are saying in relation to these themes. And there's no point denying that at different points, different treaty bodies in relation to not dissimilar issues do say rather dissimilar things. This is seen as um, as leading to a lack of coherence or credibility in the system, which some therefore feels need to be remedied in some way or another. And of course, with any set of institutions, there is the question of cost. And in recent years, this too has become uh, a major issue. Um, it is often said that the, that the challenge of cost is addressed by by it being pointed out rel how relatively little is devoted to human rights protection within the UN budget, which is little more than 3% of the UN budget as a whole, and within that, that devoted to the human rights treaty bodies is, very, is a small percentage even of that, and, and that is entirely true. But what it doesn't take into account are all the indirect costs which are put into the system, um, because the funding not only comes to the OHCHR through its regular budget, but also through um, indirect voluntary contributions made by states, which account for getting on for about half the full budget again. But then there are the indirect costs from the states involved in the operation of the system itself, if they appear before it, producing reports, responding to reports, this all produces a cost to the state. And then there are other indirect costs of the state. Many of them, of, of course, are supporting civil society, NGOs and other national institutions which are feeding into these processes. And so when you step back from the, um, from the narrow heading, which is said, this is how much the Office of the High Commissioner spends, to put it in the round. It is true, although I sometimes wish to deny this, that really a rather lot of money is spent on this system in one way or another. Is real value being got out of that money for what is being spent on it? And at the end of the day, most of that money um, is in fact coming from states. And there's no point in, in, in stepping back from that. So it is largely a state-funded system in many ways, designed what? To, to probe and penetrate the, the records of states in relation to these matters. And then we have the problem of where it sits within the architecture of the UN. 
a number of questions. We talk about the human rights treaty bodies system. There is a question of the extent to which it really is a system at all. Um, it is increasingly presented as a system. The chairs meet routinely to project it as a system. Is there much systemic, system-wide thinking? Arguably not. Most of the thinking within the treaty bodies is, I can tell you, still largely in treaty-oriented silos, and where there is more systemic um, thinking, it tends to be where those treaties reach out to the political, to the special procedures, uh, rather than to the other treaty bodies themselves. Um, and so, you know, the committee which I chair, for example, will obviously work closely with the Committee Against Torture, but also with the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. Um, the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination of Women will work very closely with a range of related special procedures, you know, on women and so on and so forth. Um, because virtually for every treaty, there are a, a range of clustered special procedures. And arguably, the idea of seeing the treaty body as a system is not necessarily the best way of viewing the UN systemically, because there are other procedures that don't duplicate in quite the same way, but complement and reach where the other can't, that would be better. So system-making in different ways would possibly be better than seeing the treaty body as a system in and of itself. But the other UN system, which we must bear in mind, is Universal Periodic Review. And over the last um, 10, 12 years, Universal Periodic Review has emerged as a really important driver for states within the UN system. This, of course, is ultimately peer review uh, in a political media by other states in a political media. Funnily enough, and entirely predictably, it is the one that states respond to most, uh, most vigorously to be criticised in a political fora by your political uh, peers on political grounds carries political consequences. Um, and so criticism and response within UPR is very important indeed for states, probably more so than that that comes out of the legally binding treaties and the special procedures. As a result, much of the focus of those procedures has been to try to get their thinking into the UPR process. But that then immediately produces a structural issue when you're trying to think about the reform and the integrity of the system as a whole, particularly as the treaty bodies. If they are largely based around a system based on reports from states to treaty bodies submitted roughly once every four years, at which they are considered by up to ten independent treaty bodies who are trying to get the attention of the Human Rights Council to take note of what they say once every four years in a round of reviews of reports of the compliance of those states by the political bodies, you begin to see that, it's, that the two things begin to coalesce in the mind. And for some years now, there is little point in denying that there has been one school of thought that has thought that the end game here should be a coming together of these two systems and that really there is little to be gained by having independent scrutiny directly of states but the treaty bodies could merely provide information that would inform into the consideration where it counts which is political oversight by the treaty body um, by the human rights council through universal periodic review and if states are preparing for that properly why replicate by doing it again in front of these independent treaty bodies. And so there's been a huge pressure to bring these things together. And the very fact that we increasingly talk of four-year cycles and so on and so forth, mapping onto UPR is an indication of this bringing together. 
But of course, what it does do is mean that human rights compliance, even of the legal obligations, passes further away from the realm of independent oversight and more into the realm of political oversight. And for many, that is, is a problem. So those are some of the... Um, you know, some of the background factors to the reform processes that, 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 that be, take, take place. The difficulty we always have with the system goes back to what I said about the Nave Pile report. If the system is made to work well, the system as currently configured falls because compliance with the system has not been good. And there are various facts and figures that I can bore you with at length, but I shall just bore you with briefly um, um, uh, uh, about this, drawn from the, 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 the latest comprehensive st uh, sets of UN statistics. <coughs> of the um, 197 states parties to the United Nations who are party to human rights treaties, there are only 36 states in the world which are fully compliant with all their reporting obligations. Uh, which is 18% of the total. Um, you may be surprised if I tell you who some of them are. This is one club on human rights that is quite good that the UK is a member of, um, because the others include people like China, Russia, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Uzbekistan, the UK. We are among all those who at one level are fully compliant with all our reporting obligations to the UN. This may come as a surprise to some. Um, of course, some of those states which are, uh, are very keen to be fulfilling their obligations um, procedurally rather than arguably substantively, but that is another issue. But one can see, therefore, that 82% of, of states are overdue in their performance of their reporting obligations um, in, 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 in some way. Perhaps more surprising is if we look at the first experience where states are meant to produce an initial report to the, U U U uh, to the United Nations, um, about 65% are overdue. These are states which are simply not even beginning their engagement with the United Nations systems that they have voluntarily um, uh, become a party to. It's also interesting to look at them as by, by treaty. Um, the, the, the ones which are most overdue are some of the older treaties, particularly the elimination of racial discrimination, torture, um, and the um, International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. The ones which have very high rates of compliance, um, interestingly enough, are the Rights of the Child and the Women's Convention. Largely, I have to say, because these are two themes that states are very keen to make their reports on, to show what they are doing to comply uh, in supporting the rights of children and the rights of women. It's equally revealing, however, that they're not so keen to submit reports under the optional protocol to the children's conventions, because that flags what they are not doing in relation to, um, uh, to, to um, sexual abuse and the position of children in armed conflict. In other words, that they're much happier to be able to use the reports to flag what they would see as their good practice of compliance generically about what they're doing to support women and children rather than focusing on, shall we say, hard, you know, hard case issues where the focus is, shall we say, on, um, on, on, on some more difficult and, and, and focused areas. So there are areas of compliance within the system um, from the state side. 
The problem from the treaty side always was said to be that they didn't have the capacity even to begin to review the material that came in. That is something that has changed dramatically over the last few years. It is often said there is a backlog of reporting within the UN, of UN treaties. That is largely no longer the case. And this largely flows from the first, attempt at the first attempts of reform that have taken place over the last few years. Against this bundle of challenges, it has been known for a very long time that this system practically is not capable, as I have said, of handling the volume of material that it is meant to do, even on the reporting side, um, if it were working um, appropriately. And also, there were these problems with coherence and so on. And so we can really divide attempts to look and change this into a number of phases. And at one level, the easiest way to look at it is the difference between top-down and bottom-up. The earliest, I suppose, bundle of reforms were based on what I would call idealist idea approaches that human rights, rather than being protected by disparate committees, would be better protected if it could all be drawn together into a single, uh, a single mechanism of oversight, forming a single human rights treaty body, drawing all the different ones together, and perhaps ultimately that morphing into a world court of human rights, more akin to those in which you find within the regional systems. And there are still, of course, powerful advocates out there for a world court of human rights, as well as for a unified treaty body system that would draw all this into one huge, great big um, model. It's fair to say that this has never had a great deal of traction, although it was pushed quite hard for some time, both by civil society and also by the UN Office of the High Commissioner. It must be said there are many attractions of this from a, from a managerial perspective within the Office of the High Commissioner, which I fully understand. Um, states had their reluctances, I think largely based around the fear of perhaps more effectiveness. Perhaps more critical were the treaty bodies themselves, Perhaps for self-serving reasons, understandably, people, um, Turkeys don't vote for Christmas, treaty bodies don't vote for their abolition and be synthesised into one single body. Uh, and there have always been, and there still is, some rather inglorious reluctance to what may or may not be an improvement on those grounds alone. But be that as it may, even if it were brought together, it would inevitably have had the result of bureaucratising more the system drawing oversight into, let us call it, the official domain of the office, further removed from the independent experts, um, who, it must be said, were never going to be anything other than volunteers within this. And so, really, um, there were many reasons why this was unlikely to, to come to, to, to fruition. But although for many the top-down approach was born of idealism, this would be the apotheosis of these disparate system into a coherent whole, for many, most, it was probably based on practicality. Um, another thing fueling that was that states were increasingly complaining of complexity, that as more and more treaty bodies came on, different reporting cycles, different rules of procedures, different focuses within treaties, this is getting difficult to understand. We need uh, a different sort of system to be able to handle this. And so when the top-down approaches failed, the treaty bodies themselves understood the need to respond, perhaps to fend off such moves in future, leading to a period that was focused on a series of processes from about 2010 onwards, known as the Dublin process, 
that was designed to try to, to focus on harmonising the practices of the treaty body. A very beloved international technique that we all learn from best practices and we all agree that there is uh, one way of doing things which is best and that we can unify our procedures and practices around these common processes across the different bodies. A harmonised approach will be more coherent for us as treaty bodies, it will be more coherent for states who are engaging with us, and that will be sufficient. And so the treaty bodies spent a lot of time discussing where they could harmonise their approaches and process. Um, I have to say they didn't get hugely far, um, but it all ended with a road crash in 2011 and 12, where they presented the outcomes of this to the state's parties to the treaty at a joint meeting um, in about 2012 where a group of states' parties turned on them, the treaty bodies, and said, this is all fascinating, but what you're telling us is how we engage with you. We have a better idea. We, as the states' parties, should take control of this process and tell you how you engage with us. And this was the outcome of, 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 this, uh, um, of, of this meeting where uh, a group uh, called the Cross-Regional Group of States largely comprised of um, uh, countries such as Cuba, Russia, China, and um, uh, um, Pakistan and various others, more or less seized control of the reform agenda, got the general, uh, and, and, and it had it agreed that the General Assembly would adopt a resolution setting out and responding to the challenges of strengthening the human rights treaty bodies. What that immediately did was pull the rug from underneath the discussions by the treaty body themselves and put it in the hands of states to decide what the treaty bodies could or could not do. Now, I have to say, the implications of this had not, were, were not immediately um, understood, I think, by those within the, within the process itself. For it really meant that the General Assembly embarked for two years on a detailed set of discussions literally about how many hours it took to consider a report, how, what would the order of speaking be, whether questions should be asked by different, you know, which order questions should be asked, what clusters questions should be put in. Questions of a granularity that the General Assembly is ill-equipped to discuss. But this was being led by a group of states who, quite frankly, were trying to drive the process to make it as ultimately ineffective as possible. And there were many attempts within this to introduce controls on the membership of treaty bodies in the interests of transparency and impartiality. So, for example, states were not, members should not have any connections not only with states but with NGOs, with civil society, academia, because they need to be independent of all these things. So I remember saying at one point in these discussions, your version of, in, your version of independence simply means ignorance. Uh, and that, of course, was what they were wanting. Um, we didn't end up there, but it, is, um, but it was indicative. It also meant that in the interests of, le of level playing field, the states were insisting that any information that was passed on to a treaty body to consider about the human rights situation in a country, for example, by an NGO, civil society organisation, should also be passed on to the state in order to have uh, equality of arms of a level playing field. You can imagine what would happen if human rights treaty bodies were passing on information provided by, by states to them in confidence to the states directly concerned by this. Um, this wouldn't have been a level playing field. It would have been, um, well, uh, it could become a killing ground. 
um, the issues rapidly moved away from technical issues of how to process reports to fundamental issues of that nature. In the end, this led to a standoff between those pressing for such reforms and so-called strengthening and uh, treaty bodies themselves and produced a, um, a resolution 68268 in 2004, which is still the governing document under which treaty bodies are currently working. They are enjoined to try to not harmonise but align their processes and procedures um, and to try to gain common working practices. They are to try to move to simplified procedures for the states to engage with them, but above all, there is to be an entire review of the system in 2020. And so what is now happening is we are returning to the agendas of both at the micro and the macro level that were set aside in, 20, in, in 2014 and the stage is being set across the course of this year and into next for a refighting um, and a, 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 of the battles that were largely set aside at that time. I don't want to give the impression that the outcome of the 2014 resolution was all bad. It wasn't. One of the big wins for the treaty body was the recognition that there needed to be more time in order to be able to consider states' reports, and that has happened. Um, and so this has largely eliminated the backlog of the reports uh, of the consideration of states' reports, and that must be a plus. Um, but it has only done so at a, at a cost. And one of the costs involved is that as certainly as far as members of the treaty bodies themselves are concerned, the amount of sitting time of many of these committees has gone up from two, four, six weeks to 10, 12, 14, and in some instances up to 20 weeks a year. That may sound great. Remember that the members are not remunerated for their activities, um, either by the UN or in many cases by the states themselves, it is getting increasingly difficult to find people able and willing to do the jobs. Um, but that's a, um, a, another discussion. But what it does show is that simply expanding it within the current framework um, is, in, is impractical for a whole host of reasons. So we are currently living in a half-life where some reforms were put in place that have made compliance at one level possible but practically very difficult, but which have not resolved the problems that the treaty body faces um, in the longer term. And if we are moving towards a world in which there should be better compliance with obligations, the system cannot hope, cope with it. And so that is what is on the table in the 2020 review. The thing that is really different this time round is that following a consultation over the past two years, a report has been brought out, um, it's known as the Geneva Academy Review, for it was they who did it, who have completely changed the terms of debate around what the future of the system may look like. Rather than have a, a system in which states to, um, come before the treaty bodies to have their reports considered, the argument that is now being put forward is that once every so many years, either four or eight, the state comes to Geneva and in effect all the different treaty bodies come before it and ask questions. And so you would have a week or a fortnight in which state X is sitting in Geneva and on the first two days the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women will come and ask some questions, then enforced disappearances, then torture, then another, and so on and so forth. Um, I have to say, from 
a conceptual as well as a practical perspective, both from the state, who would having, be having to send different experts out on a rotor basis to have the right expertise in the room, let alone from the treaty bodies themselves, that apparently would be flying in and out of Geneva like some sort of yo-yo um, uh, from all around the world on a weekly or fortnightly basis. Um, th th this um, smacks of utter, utter um, Im implausibility. And yet, that is where the debate is currently siding. What is more important is that the suggestion is that consideration of states on this basis could slip to once every eight years rather than four years, and so that the new envisaging of human rights protection after 60 years of, you would think, ever-improving scrutiny would be that the legal mechanisms move back to having a one- or two-day engagement once every eight years with a state concerning its compliance with their entire gamut of rights relating to that theme. I have to say, when you step back and see that this is the, if you like, the starting point of the next round of discussing how you strengthen oversight, you begin to wonder what has been going on. This is an incredible dilution of whatever efficacy the system actually had, and to me an abrogation of the opportunity of strengthening of a, of a human rights protective system. And yet I regret to say this is largely where we are ending up almost by default at the entry point into the consideration of the next round of UN human rights reform. It is also worth saying that none of the documents produced in order to evaluate the system going into this review had the efficacy of the system as a whole as part of its terms of reference. Although the treaty body chairs ask that one of the things they should be focusing on is the slightly interesting question of does any of this help achieve compliance with human rights, that was not part of the remit. The remit was entirely on the process aspects of how can we make this process more streamlined and efficient from a state perspective to make it easier for them to engage with the treaty bodies. Nothing about whether that had any practical impact or encouraged compliance with the system. Um, that is very depressing. Um, so where does that leave us? Uh, apart from the need for me to fall quiet to give you an opportunity to start questions. It means that if the system is, that there is a huge challenge ahead over the next 18 months for the treaty body system, which is largely going undiscussed because, frankly, relatively few people seem to know very much about it. Um, hopefully a few more will know about it uh, as a result of, 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 um, of airing it here, here today. The other thing that's worth saying is that it is all based... Th th these discussions on a set of utterly fallacious working assumptions and that is that the work of the treaty bodies has to take place in Geneva that the treaty bodies can only consider state reports by sitting in plenary with either um, with either 10, 18 or 23 members sitting around the table occasionally sitting um, extraordinarily in two groups in order uh, to get through in chambers but they really don't like doing that Nowhere in the treaties does it say this. What it says in the treaties is that states shall submit reports which will be considered by treaty bodies. It doesn't say where, it doesn't say how, it doesn't say by how many. But so entrenched of the conventions around the previous practice become that these are seen as utterly givens that are not open to challenge. And so what the 
um, treaty body chairs are currently doing is trying to devise an alternative um, set of proposals that would be based on the treaty bodies operating in a very different way. For example, why do they have to only to consider state reports in Geneva? They could do it in region. They could do it in country. The committee which I chair is a model of this because our treaty is unlike the others. We do not do reporting. Um, we actually go to countries, visit places of detention ourselves. I'm chair of a subcommittee on, the committee on torture prevention. Uh, we produce our reports and discuss it with states in states. The dynamic around this, therefore, is completely different. It wouldn't, be it wouldn't be right for the other states themselves, but it does mean there is no reason why the discussion about state compliance cannot take place with, group with smaller groups of the committee members in country in a very different way. And yet, for some reason, this is seen as being out with the treaties. It isn't. But what it requires is a change of mindset. There is also much evidence that that leads to more fruitful discussions with those better placed in order to bring about change because you tend to be dealing with those state officials who are responsible for the operational areas of activity rather than those who are largely brought to Geneva where you're dominated by the MFAs and, if you like, the diplomatic side of the equation. Um, so there is a whole range of op optional alternatives to the current debate. But regretfully, the current debate on treaty body reform remains locked in this idea that it's all about how we squeeze more and more reporting into an overburdened system in a way which is more convenient for the states without questioning whether there are any more, more useful ways of going about fulfilling these oversized functions that would have been more use to everybody, not least, and I would say, and I would give them the last word, the rights holders who were the one group of people who seemed to be left completely outside of these discussions altogether. Anyway, hopefully a few things for you to take away in thinking of the human rights system, its need for reform, and why we should be canvassing some different options of reform, and now, um, uh, before we once again get locked down into an uh, inappropriate model for the future. But that has been the history to date. Sorry to be depressive. Thank you very much.